Good morning, everyone. Welcome. We're here with the fifth talk from our sermon series in Esther. The last talk in Esther before we have a little bit of a break uh, leading up to Christmas. So this morning we're going to look at Esther chapter 5. We're coming towards the midpoint in a story and today I want to focus primarily on two different characters and compare and contrast their different ways of living in order to help us to see the different choices we have in how we live for God. So I want to look today in some detail at Haman and at Esther. Haman, the baddie of the story, and Esther, the hero of the story. And anyone who knows me will know that I have no time at all for superhero movies. I literally don't like them at all. I would rather watch paint dry. I'm being serious there as well. Okay, like literally, I don't see the point in superhero movies. They are glorified kids' movies with a little bit more fighting, aren't they? Not for me, I'm afraid. <laughs> But even I know enough about superhero movies to tell you that in every superhero film we have a hero and we have a villain. And usually the hero and the villain are chalk and cheese, complete opposites, light and dark, good and bad. And this story is no different when we look at Esther in comparison to Haman. So let's look at our passage, uh, Esther chapter 5 starting in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner courts of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting in his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of his scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I've prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favour, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfil my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I'll prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth and his many sons and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had been elevated above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife's erection, all of his friends said to him, have a pole set up 
reaching to a height of 50 cubits and asked the king to ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. Excellent. So let's start with our first character then, the, the bad guy, Haman. Now this guy really is a nasty piece of work. In fact, in Jewish culture, during the festival of Purim, it was common that the Jewish people would go to synagogue and read out the whole story of Esther out loud in full. And what the Jewish people would do is, every time they heard the word Haman, you know, Haman's name, they would boo really loudly and shout and stamp their feet. And they would shout, um, may the name of Haman be blotted out. You know, he was a real villain. Uh, apparently it was really popular with children. They used to love it, a bit like a pantomime. So kids, if there's any kids watching this with your parents, why don't you, every time I shout the word Haman, every time I say his name, why don't you stamp your feet and boo really loudly, okay? Seriously though, this guy was hated by the Jewish people. And reading the book of Esther, it's not difficult to see why, is it? But let me run through a few of the issues that we have with Haman. Well, first of all, he was arrogant. It was all about him. The world, according to Haman, he was obsessed with himself. He was second in command to the king and absolutely loved the power that was given to him through that. No one else came close to him. And as second in command to the king, people were supposed to bow and kneel um, before Haman in his presence as kind of a sign of respect. And you could see that he clearly loved that idea. He clearly liked controlling others. So this was a person living for himself. And as you can probably imagine, living for yourself and putting yourself at the centre of the universe is a dangerous place to, 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 to be. Because when you do that, there's absolutely no room for God. And you see the result of that with him when he was so blinkered by his own self-importance and self-love that he missed what was happening right in front of him and in the end it led to his death. I mean, if you want a measure of this guy, look in verse 10 of the passage we just read. Um, he calls all of his friends and family round to brag about how great he was and how rich he was. I mean, it's just gross, isn't it? So he was arrogant. What else do we see about Haman? Well, the other thing that we see about this guy is that he was a racist. He was filled with racial hatred towards the Jewish people and he made it his aim to destroy the Jewish people. And this will have partly been because of his ancestry. He was an, an Amalekite, so there was a long-standing history between his people and the Jewish people. Um, but he kind of took it to the extreme. He even took it one step further. And he hated the Jews so much that he wanted to have them killed. This wasn't just a, I don't like you sort of thing. This was real racial hatred. And there's a lesson in here for us. This guy was able to be a racist, to act in racist ways, because he didn't have God. Because it was all about him, he was blind to his own racial hatred. But as Christians, there's no room for racism in our lives. It comes into direct contrast with what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian. Look, I know this is a hot topic at the minute. It's not something we should ever stop talking about. I guess one of the good things to come out of 2020 is that we've got this discussion about racism back at the forefront. And I think that's a really important thing. 
But as Christians, racism has no place in our lives. As David A. Anderson, author of the amazing book Gracism, puts it, he says, race problems bring with them anger, bitterness, prejudice, and pride. But conversion to Christianity brings with it forgiveness, patience, and access to available resources such as the filling and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Look, the attitudes displayed within racism are in complete contrast with those displayed through the fruits of the Spirit, a Spirit-filled life. We need, to be aware, we need to be aware of that. Remember, we talked about fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. This is what a spiritual life looks like. If racist thoughts or attitudes slip in, we need to check ourselves. We need to make sure that we're challenging these issues when we see them. Because they come into direct contrast as what it means to be a Christian. Ben Lindsay, in his crazily challenging book, We Need to Talk About Race, says this. He says, Christians should be both angry about racial discrimination and courageous about changing the situation. Look, I don't know about you, but I'm often better at the anger when it comes towards racism, and I'm less engaged with trying to change the situation. But let's remember that the character that we should display as Christians contrasts fundamentally with the race statue displayed by Haman in this story. So he was arrogant, he was racist, what else do we know about Haman? Well, he was consumed with hatred. We've touched on the racial hatred already, but this guy was consumed with hatred towards one man, Mordecai, to the point where he got so obsessed with getting even that he made that his sole purpose. And it can happen easily, can't it? All right, someone winds you up, someone gets under your skin, and you will do anything to get back at them. I could tell you a lot of stories about when this happened to me. Most of them involve me being an idiot on the football pitch, but I'm sure you can think of your own examples as well. It can so easily creep into our lives, can't it? Anger and hatred comes from unforgiveness, and it's a slippery slope to disaster. Hatred and bitterness are like weeds with long roots that go into our hearts and corrupt the whole of our life and we need to watch out for them we need to be aware of them Hebrews 12 5 says that we should see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile anyone we need to watch out for unforgiveness in our lives Many of you know my story, but for years and years I held on to hatred and unforgiveness towards my abusive stepdad. And it acted as a huge wall that stopped me from moving forward in my relationship with God. And it wasn't until someone sat me down and addressed it with me in a loving and caring way that I was able to forgive it and let God in and ultimately move forward positively. Can I encourage you today that if you feel that this whole area of bitterness, unforgiveness, anger and hatred is, is real for you, can I encourage you to speak to someone? Look, I'm not underplaying the difficulty of it. I know firsthand that there's often genuine reasons for hatred and unforgiveness towards other people. But genuine help is needed. Things need talking about. You need to be released from this, and you can be. With prayer, 
And with counselling, you can be able to forgive. You can be able to let go and not be consumed by it. Look, Paul encourages us in the book of Philippians chapter 4 not to be consumed by the negative thoughts towards others, but actually he says whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Not bitterness, not anger, not hatred, not unforgiveness. Think about good things. Can you see the difference in attitude? There's no place for unforgiveness or bitterness or anger. So there we have Haman, the villain. What does his life look like? Self-centeredness, racism, bitterness, anger and unforgiveness. And you know, it's easy to write this guy off as a benchmark of um, wickedness. You know, surely we're not as bad as Haman. But it's always worth asking the question, how much Haman is in me? Do I desire to control others? Am I threatened when other people don't appreciate me as much as I think they should? Am I bitter? Do I value my possessions or my position or my reputation above God? Is my security in those things? It's quite a challenge, isn't it? To put ourselves in, in his shoes and see how much Haman there is within us. So in contrast to our villain Haman, let's talk about Queen Esther. Just to give you a bit of context here, this whole chapter takes place right after the plot to destroy the Jewish people has been discovered. And Esther has called the Jewish people to three days of fasting, which, although it's not mentioned specifically, will have almost certainly involved prayer as well. And right at the end of this time of prayer, Esther finally approaches the king. So what does all of this tell us about Esther? And how does this compare with Haman? Well, first of all, we see the wisdom of Esther. Instead of flying in, barging into the king's presence to speak to him and demand that he put an end to the killing of the Jewish people, Esther takes her time and before anything else, calls the people to prayer and fasting. What an attitude that is to have. See, earlier we looked at Haman and the God uh, and the self-centered attitude and the self-centered life. Here we have Esther and the God-centered attitude. She goes to God. She takes a problem to God before she acted at all. There's wisdom in there, isn't there? There's definite wisdom in there. I wonder how often we do that in our own lives. I think about so many examples and so many situations where I just barge in and try and fix everything on my own or I try and work things out with my own plan instead of um, going to God for wisdom and, and making God my starting point. But you know, it's important that we seek God and get wisdom from him. God wants us to do that. We see it written in, in the book of James. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should go and ask God who gives it generously. God wants to give us wisdom. Like Esther, that should be our starting point. It should be going to God before we act in the big things, yes, but also in the day to day. Esther had wisdom, but what else do we see about Esther? Well, she was a woman of faith. 
what we can forget about this story, and especially when can comparing Esther to Haman, is that Esther no doubt was also very angry and upset with how things were happening and playing out with the Jewish people. Her people were about to suffer unthinkable hardship. But the difference between Esther and Haman is that with Haman we see the anger and bitterness come out as hatred and rage, whereas with Esther we see it given to God and we see her acting in faith. Same feelings, same frustrations, but different outcome. And that's the same attitude that we're called to have. We're called to give things to God. We see it in 1 Peter 5. Cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, this is really good advice. If we give our hurts to God instead of bottling them up, if we let go and don't let them have a hold over us, we avoid playing into the enemy's hands. Do you know, Jonathan Knight gave me some really good advice a few years back. He said that um, he made it his goal in life, especially in church, to choose not to be offended. Instead of reacting badly or bottling up things which cause him hurt or offence or upset, he just takes them to God, leaves them with him and chooses not to be offended. I think that's great wisdom. I think that's a great attitude to have. Giving things to God and choosing not to dwell on them. So Esther was confident that she could fix the situation, which is why she called the people to prayer and fast. Esther's faith led to real courage. She was prepared to die, actually, for God. We see it written in chapter 4, verse 16. She says, if I die, I die. She had so much trust in God that she was prepared to put everything on the line to see him outwork his purposes. I wonder when the last time that we had that same commitment and faithfulness to God was. Putting him above literally everything. So we've been working through this book recently with the youth group called Hope Reborn. And just last week it had this true story in it about a rural village in India. This Welsh gentleman, um, spurred on by the Welsh revival, he travelled out to India to preach the gospel to the people in the villages out there. And in this really rural tribal village, just one family gave their lives to God, followed him. And when the man was questioned by the village elders and the village leaders about his faith, they told him that he must deny it. If not, he would face death, him and his whole family. So they grabbed him out into the town square, his whole family in front of the village, in front of all of the elders, and they said, deny your faith in this Jesus. And he refused. The head of the family, this gentleman, refused and they killed his family. Right in front of him, they gave him one more option. They said, deny your faith. And he responded with the now famous words. He said, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. 
It was killed, as it said, but the village chiefs were so impressed by his commitment to the gospel and his newfound life in Christ that they ended up becoming Christians too later on down the line. And that story got me because it was powerful, because that sort of faith and courage is what we need as Christians, isn't it? Like, yeah, we're probably not going to face death or even fear of death in our nation in the UK. But we are going to face situations where we have to give our all to God and say, no, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The cross before me, everything else behind me, every situation behind me. Because it's all about you, God. And whatever the outcome is, I don't care because I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm not turning back. There'll be times when we do need to stand up and show our commitment to God is the most important thing in our lives. Maybe you're in that situation at the moment. It's a sort of moment that Esther was facing at this time and through it she showed courage and faith. And look, there's loads of other things about Esther that I don't have time to touch on in loads of detail today, including the fact that she acted with clear and meticulous planning, which is you know, really good advice for us actually. We can learn so much from Esther. Like we've got a, a big mission to reach Teesside and beyond. Got a big vision as a church. But not all of that can be done straight away. It needs planning and precision. But most importantly, as Esther demonstrated, it needs prayer. Esther's first part of her planning was to call the Jewish people to pray. The intercessors are so important. And you know, this is something which I'm trying to model recently. I don't know if you know this, but during our last two Alpha courses, we've had a group of just amazing people praying on a separate Zoom call at exactly the same time as our Alpha meeting. Just crying out to God for the course, for the guests, for the evening, for the technology. And it's so encouraging, it's so releasing to know that people are petitioning and, and praying to God. We need more of that. We need more of that in our church. We need prayer to be the centre. Because, you know, I feel like for Esther, the battle with the king wasn't won at the banquet table during the meal. No, it was won in that prayer time beforehand. That's when the battle was won. That's when the situation changed. And it's the same for us. We need to fight our battles on our knees, so to speak. We need to put prayer at the centre. We need to seek God first and foremost. Hopefully I've inspired you to come along to our prayer meeting tonight, by the way. So there we have Haman. And we have Esther. What a big difference between the two of them. On the one hand, we have a person trying to go through life on his own, looking to himself for strength and focusing on his own achievements. You know, it's okay for a while. He got some success, that's fine. But in the end, it was all pointless. And this is a reflection, actually, of us as people. When we try and do things on our own, without God, when we make ourselves the centre, things might go well for a while, but actually we're going to mess up. We're going to mess up eventually. And things like anger and bitterness will catch up with us. We'll never be able to sustain things. We're flawed, ultimately, as people, and we need a saviour. And 
And on the other hand, we have a God-focused life, don't we, from Esther, putting him first, allowing him to shape and lead. We see that that leads to courage, wisdom, and release. We see that leads to um, amazing opportunities to see God move. And do you know what's amazing? It's that, that God knew this. God knew that we needed a saviour. God knew that we couldn't do it on our own. He knew that a self-centred life would lead to disaster. And so through Jesus' death and resurrection, he gave us the opportunity to turn to him and have this God-centred attitude. And it's something that we need to remind ourselves of every day. When we forget and push God to one side, we need to remember that he's so full of grace. I mean, come back to him. We don't have to do it on our own. What an encouragement. Maybe this morning you need to do just that. Maybe this morning you do need to refocus on God, put him back at the centre. Maybe you've just got a little bit off centre recently. Maybe you've lost sight of God a little bit. Yeah, he's, he's still there, but he's not quite at the centre. He's not quite your first thought. Come back to him. Say sorry and move on, move him back to the centre and push on. Maybe God is the centre for you. Maybe you're on fire for God, you're running with him. Can I encourage you to keep going? Just like Esther, keep going. Keep keeping God the main thing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for today. God, thanks so much that you give us the Bible for, for wisdom. You give us these stories to teach us about different ways of living, Lord. And I just pray that today, right now, Lord, would you help us to recognise any areas of our lives where we slip into Haman territory, God. Help us to recognise any area of our lives that see us living self-centred or see us consumed by bitterness, God. Lord, help us be more like Esther. Give us radical faith. Give us wisdom. Give us courage, Lord. Help us to keep you at the centre, Lord. Lord, as we approach this Christmas period, Lord, would we rightfully put you where you deserve to be and that's at the centre of our lives, Lord. God, we love you so much. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for this meeting. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this church, Lord. Amen.